Hey there, ladies and gentlemen. This is the Rebel Starbuck with you this week on Shooting the Shiz Out with my co-host Dylan Broda. You're on a beautiful sunny afternoon in the middle of the week. How you doing, Dylan? Yeah, I'm a bit tired. Did the old uh, John Smith Festival that weekend. It was an interesting one anyway, but uh, a lot of good bands. Uh, Who's the main event? The main, well, I guess they had three. Um, they had the main event on the Thursday, which was Amaranth. Mm-hmm. This, uh, I guess there's three singers in that band, and it seems to be this uh, band that doesn't know what genre they're in. Are they death metal? Are they uh, pop? Are they like Britney Spears pop? Or are they power metal? I don't know. Uh-huh. But, uh, interesting band, really nice people anyway, but um, seemed to get the crowd going. And on the Friday night, it was Arch Enemy. Arch Enemy, all right. Yeah, so we had our Canadian front woman there, the uh, Alyssa. Alyssa, yeah, she's she's a good looking one. She is, and she can she can do that growl. You know, I think that's that's the that's the gimmick there. You have oh, like absolutely. This, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. You got this really good looking chick dressed all up in the leather and blue hair and whatever. Uh-huh. Um, she's a vegan too, I think. Is she okay? Yeah. Well, there you go. I I couldn't tell. <laughs> But just by looking at her, anyway. Not, but that, not, not that it matters. No, well, that's yeah. a sidebar. There you go. Funny, you know, you. I don't know Doyle von Frankenstein there of the Misfits, which she's, I guess she's paired up with. I have a hard time believing he's a vegan. But um, anyway, uh, yeah, the, and the growl that she does, you know, that's uh, it was good. She, they had the crowd going like a really good uh, show from them. And then the last night it was Amorphous who, who. Uh, I guess you would say ate the dirt there. They played, started to play at uh, twelve fifteen, just mm-hmm. after midnight. Well, they were living after midnight and uh, went till about one forty-five, and uh, that was good too. One band I discovered, if I'll mention one, mm-hmm. um, seemed to be a, a theme. It was these uh, uh, female-fronted heavy bands so there was a band called ginger from ukraine it was spelled with the j's j-i-n-j-e-r mm-hmm. and uh, four piece the bass guitar drums and very minimalistic very anti-normal metal where you had like giant stacks of guitars and guitar cabinets and you know a thousand drums and all that kind of stuff they just mm-hmm. they had as little stuff as possible the drummer just with a kick drum and two floor toms snare and a bunch of cymbals but no you know nothing nothing huge extravagant and then the singer a very good looking ukrainian woman who did this very impressive death metal growl sound and then also switched up to some very clean and beautiful sounding vocals and some choruses and things like that but surprised me i didn't know what to expect and they put on a very good show and so if you're into that kind of thing, check them out, Ginger. So there you go. Well, this week we're going to be talking wrestling-wise about the top draws in the wrestling industry. And uh, throughout the years and throughout the decades and whatnot, in pro wrestling, it's always been a business, always will be. And in business, your number one objective is to make money. Now, if you're not making money, you're not going to be in business very long. 
So uh, even with WWE as a brand being so strong as it is nowadays that they don't even, you know, Dylan, they don't particularly advertise main events. Like back in the day in the Mm. 80s, it was like Hulk Hogan is coming to town, man. It's like, I got to, it's a must-see attraction, Hulk Hogan or Andre the Giant's coming. Yeah, definitely. Well, no longer. I mean, it's honestly, it's, we are in a very, I, I, I think that like, this is the culmination of already like a, right here to start out of this week's episode is the, the question being who's drawing today? Mm. Yeah. I who, who is the draw? Like even like, let's say new Japan, mm. uh, I guess maybe Okada, but, but I mean, we, we'll get into that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, with AEW, who's the draw mm. right now as they're building their company. With ROH, who is the draw? Who and when we're talking about draws, yeah, the draw means that uh, it's a must-see attraction, not just a catchphrase. I'm not talking about the Miz. Mm. Uh, that's a, that's a catchphrase, but a must-see attraction that you will pay money for, not just you, but you and your friends, your grandma, your grandpa, yeah, your worst enemy, your employer, and whoever else. It's on everybody's lips on Monday morning when you go back to work. Everybody's talking about it. It used to be, like I said, back in the 80s, Hulk Hogan. In the 90s, it was Stone Cold, mm. and it was The Rock, of course, Yeah, uh, at the turn of the century and uh, whatnot, too early to th- the early 2000s. But uh, nowadays, it's really, really a good question and poison and to ask that who were the top draws and for what reason in our industry? Yeah. And second of all, what does it take nowadays to draw? Because, like, for example, I'm a promoter, uh, I'm a match booker, and I'm in business. So, therefore, I need to make money. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to book Shizat that's going to draw. Well, you, that's the smart way to do it. Yeah, because anything else is not a business. Yeah. It, I mean, uh, and it, it's a really difficult idea <laughs> if you think, like, one one person, one name, one face you put on a poster. You yeah. don't, it doesn't matter who else you put there. You, you put the one one face there, and that alone will sell out your event, your arena, your your club, whatever. Mm-hmm. But uh, who? Yeah, who is that today? And that that is actually a, a very good question. I mean, on the indie wrestling scene, uh, I guess it all depends on where you are in the world, but, um, and then again, sometimes the big draw in, let's say in the UK might not be a draw whatsoever in Finland. Well, that's it. Because the thing is, unless you have visibility in a certain market, just because you're somebody somewhere doesn't mean you're somebody somewhere else. Yeah. So therefore, uh, you have to know your stock as a wrestler. Mm -hmm. You have to know, uh, what your reach is. And uh, then you have to know, like, what the general, how could you say, the general um, level of wrestling, how could you say, maybe the, the entire package aptitude yeah. or, or whatnot is in that certain given sector. So if you have a lot of guys who are just as good as you, if not better than you, therefore, even if you're a star somewhere else and you go to that different country where there are a lot of other guys who are much better than you on the card already, your stock is not that high. Mm. Therefore, you might be in, in like, like, per, per se, that night yeah. in the enhancement role. Right. You might, you'll probably be doing the job. Um, but nonetheless, 
there are reasons for that. So therefore, let's get into it. Yeah, uh, from the beginning of time. I mean, pro wrestling is an old game. It's a, it's an older game than most people think. But um, late eighteen hundreds, it started in Europe and uh, slowly made its way then at the turn of the century to North America. And uh, in 1905, the first pro wrestling world champion was crowned, and his name is George Hackenschmidt. Yeah. Hackenschmidt from uh, Tallinn, Estonia, by the way. Was he really? Yeah, yeah, yeah he was. Yeah, he had, he had Russian blood, but uh, I forget, well, he was a mixture of something, of course, like everybody else. But his mom and his dad from different countries, but still, he was from Tallinn. And um, then uh, 1905, so he was the first, uh, like, established or recognized world champion. Hmm. Uh, back in the day, he was so popular that we had Teddy Roosevelt say at one point that if I wasn't the president of the United States, I'd like to be George Hackenschmidt. Really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's so, amazing. Yeah. So in other words, I mean, he was on that level of popularity is like Babe Ruth. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. he was over. Wow. I mean that's that's incredible. I mean, and the funny thing that uh, now I learned, I didn't know he was he was like from Tallinn, Estonia. That mm-hmm. this is a, a thing that I think the people of Estonia need to get behind, like if the, smarten up. Yeah, first mm-hmm. uh, established pro wrestling champion is from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they gotta they gotta start having some amazing pro wrestling going on down there. I think. Well, it's uh, I think it's. Due time. There you go. Well, nonetheless, um, so if we're looking back at all these greats, uh, one of the best books ever, like autobiographies in the wrestling business, was Lou Thez's Hooker. Hmm. And for the life of me, I can't get over the fact that I lost my copy of Hooker oh, on, on a trip to Germany one time. I forget what tour it was. I think it was for, I was on... I was I was at a gig in Hanover, I believe. I think it was 2013 or 2014. It was one or the other. Mm. But I think I I forgot it back on the plane. And uh, anyway, but I've re- I'd read the book a couple of times already to that point. And uh, Luthez goes into detail about the Farmer Burnses and the the Gotches and people like that. The the, the absolute how could you say the early gods mm. of the pro wrestling genre. And uh, do you know, Dylan, where did pro wrestling actually start? Well, I guess I have the the idea that it was starting in this carnivals kind of a, was it like the strongman competition, some kind of open challenge idea or some, something around there. But uh, at least uh, I have this vision, my, my idea about it is that it came from this kind of uh, carnival idea where you had this, this fighter, that would, I mean, probably had the predetermined outcomes there as well, just to to make some money, so people would bet on on what thing, one thing or the other. But uh, how close am I to that? Yeah, you're pretty close because the thing is that uh, so back in the days, they used to have touring carnivals that would tour the country mm. and the states and whatnot, like let's say in, in the U.S. Uh, and all around Europe. So the the general idea was this that every carnival had their own carny wrestlers. And these carny wrestlers were damn good. Mm. They were like legitimate tough guys yeah, uh, who could handle themselves against anybody. They knew all the dirty tricks. They knew how to turn the tables. And uh, generally, nobody in a straight-up fight could beat these guys. Yeah. 
So the thing is that once your carnival, because it's uh, the carnival was a business even back then. Yeah. Once the carnival comes to town, and you got all your local toughs. Yeah, yeah. And then you, all the townsfolk know who the local toughs are. Mm. So they start, you know, of course. So our our guy here, John, is uh, he's gonna kick this guy's ass. I mean, he could take this guy any day of the week. Mm. So. Then the carnival owner, you know, of course he's smart to it, so he's doing the MC, and he's so who would like to step up and face our mm. our grand champion here? Exactly, yeah. And then the townsfolk, hey, John, John, come on, man! Mm. And uh, then they'd fork out, you know, maybe get John a bit drunk or whatever, and put him out there. Yeah, right. And then they put the bets down. All right, ladies and gentlemen, how much do you want to bet that? Uh, that our boy's going to take John here tonight. Mm, and of oh, course, everybody n- bets on John. Yeah, everybody's betting on John. It's like, oh, hell no. It's like, our boy's going to kick this guy's ass. This guy's a scrawny fucking punk. There you go. Anyway, so then the, they'd pass the hat around and all the bets would be placed down. And then the carny wrestler would whip the, the local guy's ass. Yeah. And the thing is, if you're in town for a week or two weeks with mm. the carnival, because that's how they used to work it. You weren't in town for just like one weekend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were in town for a longer period of time. Mm. Okay, didn't have the, the the trains, planes, and automobiles that you know we have today. So, um, then these carnival, the, the carnival bosses, actually got smart to the fact that if our guy keeps on kicking these local guys' asses, nobody's going to be betting anymore. Mm. Nobody's going to be putting down money because it's it's a given that these local guys are going to get their asses handed, yeah, yeah. handed to them. They are not professional fighters. Yeah, and or they're not up to stock. They're not up to par mm. with the carnival wrestler. Yeah, yeah. So therefore, they had to come to a point of collusion where they started to say that, okay, well, we're in town for a week, so let's say, hmm, all the way from Monday, Monday all the way down to maybe Saturday, max Saturday, maybe Friday night. Mm. Uh, we'll kind of go like, Back and forth, maybe, uh, you know, the local guy is going to win three out of two or something, or like three, mm. win, you know, yeah, yeah, three yeah. out of five. Uh, and then at the end, you know, like w- when you get people really believing that oh, our guy has a legitimate chance, mm. you make it really close. Yeah, yeah. You, know, you, you make it like he just barely got him. Yeah. Then a Saturday, <clears throat> and maybe the last show's on Sunday, then you clean house. Yeah, yeah. That's your time to take that baby home because then people are betting high. Yeah, right. They're, they're putting the biggest money down on the line because all throughout the week you've made that local boy look good hmm. to the point where people are actually thinking that, oh, he, now he now, now tonight, I mean, he beat him already three times this week, but man, those other two times when they, when this uh, this this Carney wrestler beat our guy, it was like, but still it was just by the skin of his teeth. Mm. Right, so they they were able to bait them and to and to actually like draw them emotionally into it to the point where, once that payoff came around, that's where you made your money. Hmm. Interesting, yeah. And 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 at that point, of course, then you got to the point where these carny promoters realized that we could make money just on pro wrestling. Hmm. It doesn't have to be part of the carnival. Yeah, yeah. So you can detach it from the carnival concept and just do wrestling shows. Yeah, yeah. So that's the beginning of pro wrestling. Yeah, it's really actually quite an interesting beginning. I mean, you have, uh, in a lot of ways, like you needed to have properly trained guys who could handle themselves uh, almost definitely, especially against any kind of local guys, because you you could run into somebody who, you know, might actually legitimately beat your your wrestler. 
So you needed to make sure that your guy was was top notch. That's it. So yeah, you know, uh, and just interesting ideas to like how they just figured out that this is a way to make money. And even then, you would you could say that the, the outcome was predetermined. Like, okay, let the guy win tonight. You know, now tonight you can you can take it. And in that way, at that time, as you pointed out, the wrestler still had to beat the guy mm-hmm. for real. Yeah, that's it. You know. Yeah. So, and in the mind of the uh, in the mind of uh, small town John, he was beating the guy for real as well. Mm-hmm. So the realism there was was real. So it was really interesting start. That's for sure. In Luthez's book Hooker, he goes through. I don't recall. I'm trying to like just think back now, but uh, who the counterparts were. I think it was somewhere like in Chicago or whatnot. But they had a like a championship match for the world title, early early 1900s. And um, anyway, they went something in the range of like over four hours of wrestling, like just one match. I mean, we're talking like Ric Flair was a 60, 60 minute man. He was doing max ninety minutes a night, you know, against guys like Barry Windham back yeah. in like eighty six, eighty five. But then. I mean, back in the day, if you wrestled for over four hours without a decision. Yeah, yeah. That's what they called a shoot, right? Because you Mm. got two guys who are so damn good. But think of that crowd, though. So you had the undercard, Mm -hmm. and then you get to the main event. You're there for, like, let's say, in excess of six hours, seven hours, maybe even eight hours. Wow. And it's like, you got to think those people are dying a miserable death. They're, They're, like, watching something that they have no idea when it's going to end. It's, yeah. And these guys are just like, they're just grappling uh, because it's it's right down the middle. Yeah, yeah. And that's when they realize that you're going to be losing customers. Hmm. If that's the case, if it goes that long, you bring the kids. You know what I mean? Yeah, you, yeah, You bring yeah. the entire family. Well, the kids are going to start getting cranky, mm-hmm. right? Your wife is going to be bored out of her mind. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you're going to have to go for a piss, you know? True. You're going to have to go eat eight hours. It's yeah, a long yeah. time to be at a show. No kidding. So it's at some point you're going to be so out of it that it's bad for business. Mm. So therefore they needed to make wrestling, how could you say, more cohesive, Mm. right? And at that point, um, of course, you had to snug up and tighten up the matches. Now there was an old, um, like this is around the time before Vince McMahon Sr., it was they were his business partners too, but uh, they had started before Vince, called the Gold Dust Trio. Have you heard of these guys before? I heard I heard definitely the name, but I really actually have no no clue as to what what were they doing. The Gold Dust Trio. Uh, I yep. mean, yeah, I've heard the name outside of the you know Dustin Rhodes Gold, Gold Dust character, but um, tell me about them. Okay, so the Gold Dust Trio. These guys were a group of promoters, and uh, they controlled pro wrestling. Basically, all the way back to the 1920s. Hmm. So they've been around for a while, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Now, these guys started to to implement certain, like, uh, how could you say, elements into pro wrestling, which made it more uh, consumer-friendly, you could say, like Hmm. visually more stunning. Right, okay. So they would actually put uh, certain moves into the matches or, or, like, have the guys learn certain moves which were more dazzling at that time. Hmm. And uh, would then give them more bang for their buck. But they were comprised of the trio. So these guys were known as the Gold Dust Trio of Ed Strangler Lewis, one of the most popular wrestlers of all time. And yeah. a former world champion. 
uh, his manager, Billy Sandow, hmm. and a guy called uh, Joseph Toots Mont. All right. M-O-N-D-T. Uh, now, Toots Mont went on to become the business partner of Vince McMahon Sr. Hmm. All right. So when Capital Sports was formed back yeah, in yeah. The, the 1950s. Okay. Or was it the 1960s? Anyway, but right towards the end. So anyway, the, the point being that uh, anybody who's interested, you got to go in and just check out this thing on, let's say, Wikipedia. Yeah. And uh, just look up Gold Dust Trio, and you'll find out about the the trifecta of men who had an indelible imprint on wrestling history and changed the course of wrestling to where it is today, more or less. So, like, the, the lessons that were learned from the Goldust Trio were passed on to, let's say, Vince McMahon Sr., mm. and uh, those were passed on to his son, yep. Vince Jr., who now, now runs the WWE. Yep. And uh, then, of course, those were passed on to guys like Triple H, who will be the leader of WWE once Vince is gone, yeah. as long as he's married to Stephanie. So, um Anyway, the, the thing is that, I mean, and all these guys back in the day, of course, they knew each other. You know, like, I'm, I'm saying, like, it's not just Vince Sr. who had, like, exclusive rights to knowing Toots Mont. Right, right. Right? So, like, the, the top wrestlers around the country, guys like Luthez, mm-hmm. uh, like Farmer Burns, whatever, mm-hmm. they knew these guys. Yeah, all right. Right? So, uh, and everybody got smart to it. That's the whole thing. Like, when one group or one area started to curtail, or to, not curtail is the wrong, the wrong word, it's like to... They started to, how uh, just formulate yeah, okay. their their pro wrestling mm. uh, to that more consumer friendly kind of aspect or, or that angle. Everybody else followed suit because mm. they saw that's where the money is. Yeah, yeah. Well, it makes sense. I mean, uh, you got to go where the money is. It's that's it. You got to, and in that way, it's an interesting idea of like the evolution of pro wrestling. Absolutely, where, you know, yeah. and. Uh, like you said, with these like gigantically long matches and, you know, that was probably a really big deal for, for a little while. But then when, when that started to get a little bit on the boring side or, or mm-hmm. starting to lose some audience or whatnot, trying to figure out how to tighten things up and to even make even more money. And then you have guys with these ideas and things. Funny that though the idea of tightening up a match and maybe shortening it and doing something a little bit more flashy, mm-hmm. probably felt uh, sacrilegious at the moment, at the time, you know, the transition mm-hmm. for guys, maybe like Frank Gotch and, uh, and uh, what w- who would be there. But, uh, you know, I wonder, did they feel like this is sacrilegious to do this kind of uh, change, you know, to, to, let's say, throw some flashy move in there or something like that? Well, we'll get into the sacrilegious part of it and the absolute over-the-top element of pro wrestling and where it changed and where it really took off after a word from our sponsors. Hey there, my name is Michael Mudgelai, better known in the pro wrestling world as the Rebel Starbuck. I've decided to launch a brand new live-action entertainment venture called Slam Wrestling Finland, which is an on-demand service offering the best top-of-the-line professional wrestlers out of Europe today. We can custom tailor the entire show from start to finish. Girls matches, triple threat matches, tag team matches, or then the good old one-on-one damn good wrestling If you've got something in mind, we'll find the right guy or girl for the job. 
Slam Wrestling Finland is an on-demand live service that offers you, as the customer, the opportunity to choose as many matches as you would like. Contact us today at slamrest.fi or slamsports.eu. Red Skull Hot Sauce. Fiery sauce focused on flavor. Made by a Canadian in Helsinki. Awesome sauce in a sweet-ass skull bottle. That's Red Skull Hot Sauce. R-E-D-D Skull Hot Sauce. On Facebook and Instagram. Yeah, all right. So we're talking about uh, the draws, the top draws in pro wrestling. Yeah. Today, here on Shooting the Shizat. A very pivotal, very uh, important question, because the thing is that every promoter out there and every wrestling company, every promotion... If you're not in this business to make money, if you're not in it to sell tickets and put asses in seats, then I don't know how long you're going to be around and I don't know how smart your business is because uh, everything thrives on dollars and cents and mm. bottom line at the end of the day. Yeah, well, that's how that's how it goes. Yep. And uh, the thing is that like when, when wrestling got hot in the, uh, in the States, was actually in the 1950s. It was when uh, black and white television came in. Okay. Onto the forefront. Was this like Gorgeous George's? There, you just said the name. You just said that. Yeah. So Gorgeous George was the first absolute breakout star of the TV era. Mm. Black and white television. Makes sense. And he was so over the top and so, how could you say, like flamboyant. Yeah. Uh, He had his wife come to the ring with him as his valet. And, um, but he got over to the point where he just, he would outrage people. Yeah. He was the ultimate heel. People just love to hate him. Yeah. It's funny when you say getting over, and I think a lot of people misunderstand that that phrase if you're not so like uh, privy to the business, but mm-hmm. that getting over means that people like you. Yeah. Get, getting over is, is like, it can be liking, or then it can be just a really impassionate, strong Emotion. emotional response. Yeah. Like a, a like heel. Hating. Yeah, like hating, exactly. Yeah. A heel can be over. And yeah. like Ric Flair in the NWA as the world champion, he was over, mm. but he was over because he got heat. Yeah, yeah. Right. So the thing is that once I was in, was it 10 years ago now, I was wrestling in Egypt and Al Snow was on the tour. Hmm. And Al Snow made a very interesting question to all the wrestlers. And he said that, that what's the number one thing that a babyface has to have in our industry? Hmm. That's a good question. Well, what would you say, Dylan? Uh, I guess he, I, I think he would have to have charisma, but uh, then again, I have a feeling. What's the, what's the number one job of the babyface? Put it that way. Number one job. What does he have to do? To gain, uh, I guess, to gain the love of the crowd. What, do you, what do you call that? Uh, sympathy? Uh, I I can't think, because uh, I know I'm going to be wrong. Cause it's Alex, called getting over. Oh, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he's he's got to get over. It should have been, it was obvious. Yeah. Well, how do you get over? Hmm. There, that's, I guess, the question of the, of the wrestling business. Well, I, you need a, you need a very, very powerful counterpart. Every hmm. great good must have yeah. an equally strong or a greater evil to overcome. That, that's So true. therefore, what's the number one job of the heel? To get the baby face over. Or <laughs> to get heat. Yeah, yeah guess, there yeah. you go. It's a two, yeah. pr- you just said it, two yeah. pronged sword to get the baby face over so that the business can draw money and to get heat because otherwise the crowd won't care. Mm. Yeah. So it's like a baby face now to, for a baby face to be over. What does the baby face need to do? 
in that context of being in the ring with that hot heel, yeah, what does the babyface need to do to have people actually give a shit? Yeah, I guess. I mean, in my mind, anyway, would he have to? Would they have to suffer and like kind of overcome the the odds or kind of get you know, have that like story of uh, how would you say that uh, the underdog? Yeah, facing facing some terrible situation and the odds are strong against them, but they prevail. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's too complicated of an explanation. But, but in the context of overcoming, mm. what must they exhibit? I guess passion and uh, what would it be like that they uh, that they won't give up? or what Tenacity? What, tenacity, yeah. How about the word fire? Fire. Well, there you go. There's the perfect word. Yeah. So therefore, I mean, if a baby face, to get over it, if you don't show fire, mm. and if you don't have that deep, dramatic impact on people, whether it's the way that you talk, the way that you look, the the, the gait of your walk or your body language or whatever, mm. uh, you won't get over. Yeah. And, and the thing is that uh, only the, 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 the absolute successful, the greats, how could you say, the, the, big, the biggest successes in our industry mm. have all had universally uh, the traits that are required to be a mega star Mm. okay now these are fire Mm. charisma uh the look now it's like mick foley once said that it's it's like you not everybody has to wrestle the same Mm. that's not the that's not the thing yeah um but you need to have something inherently very strong about you Mm. so like andre the giant wasn't built like arnold schwarzenegger true but he was andre the giant he was yeah he was the biggest man in pro wrestling Mm. And, and on top of that, there was something about his demeanor and his personality, which was likable to people. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So all of these things, you know, put together and especially if you don't show fire and, and show passion for what you do, I think the same is true for rock and roll. I think the same is true for the movies or whatever, but that unless people can feel that you're in it, that you're in that moment, that you're living it, Mm. uh, they will not invest themselves. They will not feel vicariously through you. Yeah. So all the greats have had these attributes. And nowadays, um, I think that if we look back in, let's say, I would even argue, I would dare to argue that the last draws in pro wrestling almost, I would say, died towards the end of the 1990s. Hmm. Yeah. Now, if we look back at, at like, who were the actual, the, the, even back then, the draws. Okay, let's go back to let's say the the boom period. Yeah. The MTV collaboration music television with WWE back in 85. Right. Right. So that's what put Vince McMahon on the worldwide or how could you say on the national map in the US at least. Mm. Was that he got on music television with Cindy Lauper with her manager David Wolf uh with Mr. T and uh with then uh, a card that they were able able to promote on television where it was uh, Roddy Piper against Hulk Hogan, mm. right? Yeah, yeah. So the thing is that that was the platform, the national platform, because they didn't have the internet back then. Mm. This is 85. Yeah. Uh, but they they had something which was super hot at the time for that era, which was MTV. That's true. So they were able to parlay on that platform to collaborate and to get over their own stars uh at the expense of other stars, pop culture icons like Mr. T and Cindy Lauper. Mm, true, true. 
Now, if, if you think of the draw back then, Hulk Hogan was without doubt the hottest thing in wrestling. Yeah, no now, doubt. So why is that? Let's, like, why do you think? Why was Hogan that popular in the mid-80s? Yeah, I mean, I guess he had that larger than life. He was a character. I mean, he was actually quite large, right? Yeah, so, he was a big man. Um, it was a spectacle. And um, he was the real American. He showed, like, uh, I guess the strength of uh, what the people felt they wanted to be represented by and overcoming these great odds, I guess. Could it have been somebody else except Hogan? Like, if you look back at that period, do you think it could have been? I actually don't think so. I mean... uh, It couldn't have been Jimmy Snuka? Couldn't have been uh, Ricky Steamboat or somebody else? You don't think? Uh, On a mass majority, you know, the... uh, the majority of the public, I think, the only the only figure I could see there is Hulk Hogan. I mean, I don't think I, I think Jimmy Snuka. Maybe if he was a, you know, of course everybody loved or a lot of people loved him as well, mm-hmm. um, or hated him, or however it would be, he got a lot of uh, a lot of emotion towards him as well. But nothing compared to Hulk Hogan. The guy was just big. He was a character. He was wild. And yeah, I mean, he, he was representing America. But I would say that there, there, there's a definitive reason as to why Hogan was the man. Yeah. I'm trying to find it, but uh, I can't, uh, I mean, I, I, I see that he would be the only guy, but I don't, I really can't think of why. I think it's because of Rocky three. Hey, yeah, there you You go. No, honestly, because if you, if you look back, like I remember talking a few years ago to, a girl called Kristen Mulderig, and she was the, uh, or still is, I guess, but now they're finishing up, or they finished up Slayer. She was the manager of Slayer, and uh, and I asked her that who, or not, like, not who, but what does it take to become a success, like as an artist, as a musical artist, like what does it take to break that glass ceiling and break through, mm. make money, and, and become like a uh, household name? Yeah, and she said one thing to me. She said that every successful artist regardless of time period, has understood the day and the age that, that they are living in, and they've been able to tap into that day and age mm. to resonate with that. Yeah. So if you look at like 83, that's, that was the year that we had Rocky Three come out, right? It was a, Yeah, I think so. 1983, yeah. I believe it was, yeah. So you had Hulk Hogan, uh, had him featured prominently on one of the biggest movie franchise screens in the world at that time. Yeah. It wasn't because of pro wrestling. Mm. Hulk Hogan's breakthrough was by and large due to the fact that Sylvester Stallone believed in him. Yeah. And gave him that spot uh, at a time when Rocky was freaking super hot. Mm. True. And that's what Vince took and rode with. Because when Hulk Hogan did Rocky Three, he was not in WWE. He was in the AWA. Really? Yeah, he was yeah, yeah. He was wrestling for Vern Gagne. There you go. Out of Minnesota. And that was, they were actually thinking about taking the belt off of Nick Bockwinkel and putting it on Hulk Hogan. Hmm. Because of the popularity of that of that movie. They were doing good business in AWA. They, if you yeah, look yeah. back at their numbers, they were drawing incredible houses with Bockwinkel versus Hogan at that time. Wow. And they just didn't pull the plug in time, didn't make Hogan the champion in time. Hmm. And Vince Sr., 
or Vince Jr., whoever it was, but nonetheless, WWE, WWF at the time made their their offer to Hulk Hogan to come to New York. We have the biggest media platform in the in the U.S. because it's mm. either Los Angeles or then it's New York City. Yeah, so yeah. it's one or the other. Those are the two media centers of the country in mm. the U.S. So if you go to one or the other, you can't be missed if you, if you have a, a good enough representative. True. So therefore, Hogan went with Vince, took the chance, and in December of of uh, 1984. He beats the Iron Sheik in like five minutes. Yeah, yeah, that's right. At yeah. Madison Square Garden. So that's where Vince saw the dollars and the cents. It wasn't, this was before WrestleMania 1. Mm. This is before the actual boom period. Yeah, yeah. That's when wrestling was getting hot. Mm. But it was getting hot definitively for a lot of reasons because of Sylvester Stallone and because of Rocky. Yeah. So that's what you got to remember, folks. Uh, Rocky came before Hogan was ever in WWE as as like a household name. Of course, Hogan had been in WWF before that, but only for like short stints. Right, right. He'd been in and out. He'd wrestled like, was it Andre the Giant? Uh, was it in Comiskey Park, wherever it was in Chicago? And was it 1981? It was a cage match. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So when they say Hogan and Andre first time ever WrestleMania 3, 1987, bullshit. They will. It didn't happen. <laughs> you know, it happened way before that. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, the, the, the point here is that that every successful boom period requires a perpetrator or it requires, like, let's say, an assist, a, mm. a bit of a, a push yeah. from somewhere else. And now for Hogan to get over, he got himself over in Rocky Three. Yeah. So I... people loved his character, Thunderlips. Mm. They loved his character. And with that publicity, Vince was able to like zone in to merchandise to make money, that's where Hulk Hogan's rock and wrestling cartoon show came out. Yeah, well, right. Yeah, really tapped into that. Yeah, like eighty six sure. or eighty five, eighty six. That's when it came out. I remember that. I was a, I was a kid. I was like twelve, thirteen years old. Mm, Hulkamania. Right? Yeah, and all the merchandising that came after that. Wow. So to get over, but Hogan needed the fire, and but he had the fire. Okay, then he needed the look. He had the look. He didn't have the wrestling skills, the great like let's say Ric Flair or Luthez style of skills, but he had enough skills for his look. In other words, for that muscularity and for his size of wrestler, he didn't need to do much of anything. Mm. Just a few punches. Yeah. Clothesline, a body slam, drop the big leg. Yeah. yeah. And maybe that big boot. Yeah. That, yeah. that was it. You didn't, you didn't need to do a million things. You mm. just needed to do, to do a few things and do them damn well. Yeah. Master those things. And then you could do them with anybody, regardless of opponent. That's true, yeah. So that's where getting over is. That's that's like a lesson in getting over. Mm. So anytime it's like Vince McMahon once said to Tori Wilson, my favorite diva, or whatever you want to consider, you know, the, the, the girls in WWE back in the day of all time. But I mean, I, I love Tori Wilson. I think she's beautiful. And uh, and and she said at one point that uh, Vince once told her, "I'll give you the stage." but it's up to you what you do with a spotlight. Mm. Yeah. Now, this is another lesson in getting over. So therefore, if you are featured as an indie wrestler or any kind of wrestler on any given show mm. uh, in any given country, when you go out there, you have to do what uh, Jim Ross calls maximizing your minutes. Hmm. Yeah. So if you're given five minutes, how do you make the most out of five minutes. How do you make There's those people, yeah, yeah. how do you make them remember, remember you? Um, 
if you're if you if you're in there for like if you're on television, if Vince puts you or if AEW or if Impact or whoever puts you on television, gives you TV time, they invest television time in you, which is ratings driven. Mm. They are waiting on a return on investment, on ROI. Yeah, yeah. If you're not drawing, if people are flipping the channel and changing the channel when you're on, mm. how long do you think you're going to be in that quarter hour segment on Monday Night Raw or on SmackDown? Yeah, there's a there's a question. You're going to be out of there. Yeah. So therefore, the people that are featured on television are the ones who are retaining viewership inside of quarter hour ratings. True. In other words, you have to be over to some degree in order to carry that show. Yeah. And I mean, it seems like today, as uh, we were looking in the quote-unquote surprising person that's taken that torch for WWE is, oddly enough, our truth apparently. That's that's just so <laughs> absurd because, like, if you look back even, let's say, a year and a half ago, our truth was, along with Zack Ryder, the jobber of choice mm-hmm. for like broadcast wrestling television yeah i mean does does that also like uh somehow legitimize this 24 7 title or something or, or i guess it does the absurd skits of having our truth pin a guy on a golf course yeah for or that title sleeping or, on a plane yeah on a or then like you know the guy's wedding night, the mm. pinning pinning the guy on his wedding night. Yeah, or like what was it? He was even hiding under the ring on a table, and somebody's pulled on the table out. It yeah. is pretty absurd. Yeah, uh, but I guess is that like is it absurd enough that people can't turn away? That's the thing. I think that's like we're we're in this era of like how could you say we're in this shock era mm. that everybody's so oversaturated with social media mm. there's they've seen all the tv and all the i mean their, their attention spans in general are so short that the optimal viewing period or let's say that the time for an instagram video is seven to 12 seconds yeah right right yeah. this is this is official this yeah, is yeah. this is yeah people just can't concentrate for more than seven to 12 seconds so therefore keep it short mm. um and if you look at like wwe uh you're maximizing your minutes or your seconds now. Mm, true. And, and you're you're taking the shock value of you're trying to get people's attention for that short little period of time and just seeing if they stick with it. So I guess that 24-7 title with its skits, they're not matches. They're just skits. Yeah, true. Very true. Did you see last night, we're recording this, by the way, the day after this Raw reunion I didn't show. see it. Okay. I, I saw. It. I just saw bits and pieces off the network. And it was just one big variety show of just, you know, these these names from the past coming back for in their wrestling gear and, and just doing like promos more or less. Yeah. But inside of this 24-7 title scenario, we had Pat Patterson come and, and, and pin uh, Drake Maverick and then his old stooge buddy, uh, what's his name there, um, Gerald Briscoe comes up and then all of a sudden uh, Pat takes a nap or whatever he falls asleep in the in the locker room because he's hiding with a belt you know and he, he just and then all of a sudden Gerald Briscoe wakes him up and you you dumb son of a bitch I'm the new champion now you know he he pinned him in his sleep all right right <laughs> and then Kelly Kelly comes up and and uh and 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 congratulates Briscoe hugs him oh it's nice to see you and then all of a sudden gives him a knee in the balls and then down goes Briscoe and then Kelly Kelly becomes the first female 
uh, 24-7 24-7 champ- yeah, yeah, yeah And Medusa came back And held the title for a bit On that episode too And so the thing is that My point being is It's not about wrestling anymore Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's about the shock value Of just absurd shit Yeah And there there's that weird uh, idea that I mean, I, I'm That doesn't entertain me so much I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, I can see the entertainment inside of it in terms of this, you know, shock value or comedy, comedy wrestling, because that's comedy. Oh, that's comedy all the know, way. Yeah. You know, as mm-hmm. uh, the very little amount of wrestling there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, goes over to like what, who is the draw, who is the actual draw of these TV shows or, or these pay-per-views? And sometimes I think, I'm starting to think that it's not actually one person, but it is like... um the draw, let's say, for AEW, um, is it the Young Bucks, Jericho, Cody, Kenny Omega, or is it actually AEW? It's just the name. I want to be associated with, at, at the moment anyway, mm. I want to buy a ticket for AEW, an AEW show. I want to be at an AEW show. I don't care who's on the show. I just want to support this new, you know, I want to be the anti-WWE fan that wants to buy a ticket for AEW regardless. You know I, what I mean? I, I can kind of see that argument because the thing is that uh, with that, was it not the fight for the Fallen Fighter Fest? Yeah. When they had John Moxley go up against this Joy Janela. Yeah. And, and like I was saying earlier that on a prior episode that uh, Janela is not on the level like perception-wise mm. of John Moxley, yep. a.k.a. Dean Ambrose. Uh, he... Therefore, if you put them in a main event, uh, they were the main event because they're, yeah, they're, they're yeah. the last match on the cards. Yep. They're the main event. Definite main event. Uh, you're selling that show based on that main event to some degree anyway. Mm. And people are buying it regardless of whether or not um, Joey Janela is a draw. Mm. And that's really befuddling because the thing is like, I think like with with traditionally with wrestling, you would never ever put... Just anybody, like it's a calculated move mm. who you book into whatever match position or slot yeah. is given, right? If you're the opening match on a show, there's a reason why you are the opening match. Mm. And like a lot of people, they misunderstand the opener as being like the, the least valuable match on the card because it's the first one. No, you're yeah. wrong. Mm. It's like the first, ma- the, the first song on an album. Yeah. Needs to hit. It needs to hit. Yeah. yeah, and if you don't hit, I mean, you're missing the point, and, and you're not going to engage those people for the rest of the night, possibly, mm. if you don't catch them right away from the get-go. True. If you got to warm them up, like, slowly over the course of a few matches, no, mm. you're running a very high risk of them not getting emotionally inv- invested at all. It's true. So you got to grab them right away. Um, so, yeah, the opener is super important. Opening match. It's In wrestling, it's called the curtain jerker. Yeah. You need that match to be damn good, and the counterparts of that match have to be very carefully thought out. The same applies to how you end an album, the last song Mm. on an album. What's the last taste that you leave in somebody's mouth? Yeah, exactly. That's your main event. Yeah. Right? So therefore, that's the last match on the show. But, uh, well, I mean, that said, if, if you're looking at like... Nowadays, for example, I really feel that WWE, when they do their house shows, especially their house shows... Mm. They're selling on brand value alone. Yeah. Not yeah. based on 
the term professional wrestling because they want to do away, uh, do away with that. And I heard the reason, by the way, for this mm-hmm. is that Vince doesn't believe that Wall Street likes the word wrestling. Really? Okay. Yeah, yeah. That's that. That supposedly that's the thing. That's why it's sports entertainment mm-hmm. is because the investors and the big wigs and the people with the money on Wall Street uh, see wrestling as being this blue collar. Mm. Uh, like middle class yeah, yeah. thing. So Vince wanted to upgrade it to something else. Right. Now, whether or not this is true or not is, is really relevant, but it's a really good point. Like, mm. It's just to consider. But, um, and I, I mean, I would care to like honestly disagree with that. I would, I would say so as well, especially yeah. nowadays, you know. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. But, but now if we look at like the draws, we're talking about our truth a second ago as being uh, the, the reason why people tune into their broadcasting. Mm. But now I, now I present the question to you. Is our truth going to be the reason why they're going to buy the next pay-per-view? Yeah, well, I don't think so. No, that, that he's the reason why they tune in to television. Yeah. Not to buy the next piece of work. Mm. Now, so just because somebody is over on the Monday night shows like Our Truth, do you think that Our Truth is going to sell uh, tickets? Is, is he going to sell ten thousand seats? No, in, in Boston, for example. Well, I don't think so. I, I can't see it, to be honest with you. But uh, I, I see it as he's the guy who is bigging up their social media numbers is probably his Twitter followers are huge and people are tuning into the WWE YouTube channel just to see those short clips or, you know, gaining those kind of views, but, uh, that people actually buy tickets. Maybe it is, maybe people who are buying the tickets are wanting to see our truth since there's only about 3000 of them every night. Well, that's the thing the numbers are dropping. This is the really weird thing folks about pro wrestling today is that now the product is still like relatively hot, mm. right? I think the downturn has actually already taken place attendance wise. I think so, but it's like the, the business in other areas, mm. like not attendance. We're not talking about live events now. Yeah. And we're, okay, maybe this is just the WWE case scenario, okay? So I'm not, I don't want to say that it's like the entire wrestling world. Yeah. But since they are the industry leader, that it does reflect on everybody else to some degree. Now, the the other elements of their business, like their TV deals that they signed with Fox and and with like other, other, uh, how could you say, like syndication outlets out there. Uh, they are in the billions. I mean, they're, they're crazy money. It's like you, yeah. you could, you don't even understand how much money's on the table over these deals. True. The Saudi Arabia deal, mm-hmm. how much money's on the table with that. But so we have to segment the people that are getting over. So it's only for the social media, like our truth is he's only going to draw numbers for the social media, which doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to turn into ticket sales. True. Yeah. But now if you're, if you're thinking about, Becoming a part of our business, becoming a pro wrestler, what does it take to become a success in our industry? In other words, if you are here in Finland, for example, like the ass end of the world, that's where we are, ladies and gentlemen, uh, you can't fly, uh, sorry, you can't uh, drive anybody out of here. In other words, it's, Mm. we are kind of like, it's not really an island, but it may as well be. It may as well be because, yeah, the, the way that the country is shaped, you have to drive all the way up through either northern Sweden or then through uh, through Russia to get to mainland Europe. Mm. And that's an, it's just, it's not doable. Yep. 
it's way too expensive, time consuming, and it's not, it's just irrational. So therefore you have to fly a person out of Finland to get booked somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Now here's what you're up against in the wrestling business. Uh, promoters are always looking for the cheapest possible ticket. True. Which is why they take four guys to a car, sometimes even five guys to a car mm. out of Central Europe. So you can have wrestlers situated and located in countries like Germany or like Belgium mm. or like Holland or France and Italy and whatnot. Uh, and they will, if they book you, they'll usually take more guys from that territory, from that area, good enough guys. Yeah. And put them in the car. So you'll have the one guy who's like the, the captain, so to speak. He's mm -hmm. the, he's the, the big boss of that group. Yeah. And then he'll take his boys and he'll put them in the car with him and they will drive that six to eight to 10 hours to wherever, or even like it might even be four hours. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But, and then most times they'll, they'll even skimp on the hotel. They'll save the promoter, the hotel cost by just driving back in the middle of the night. Yeah. Yeah. So the promoter is getting four guys to a car. Who are willing to put in the miles on the road mm -hmm. to make the booking, not have to pay them a hotel, just pay their fee and that's it. And their gas. Yeah. Right. Compared to having to fly somebody out of Helsinki, Finland, one guy only. Yeah. Plane ticket plus hotel mm -hmm. plus your match fee. Yeah. So therefore the question becomes, this is just one example. I don't mean to single out Finland here, no, but, but it's a really good example yeah. because that's where we're recording this. And yep. And that's where we're from. Well, actually, we're, we're from Canada, but we're still, well, we're in Finland right yeah, now. Yeah, we're from Finland right now. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> when you look at this argument, you look at why should somebody book me or why should somebody mm. book anybody out of Finland? Yeah. Now, if you don't have the credentials or the uh, arguments to have a promotion, a promoter, whether it's in Sweden or whether it's in Germany or whether it's in the UK or Japan. Mm-hmm. To say nothing of North America yeah. or, or Mexico, but if, if you don't have the arguments, the must-see attributes, uh, you're not going to get booked because you're up against a whole bunch of other wrestlers up and coming who have these areas covered. Yeah. In other words, they have the look, they have the charisma, they have the skills, or at least they have two out of three. Yeah. And they're so, much closer. And they're much closer. Yeah. So it's a very geographically, how could you say, it's a very territorial system mm -hmm. still nowadays. No, the, 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 the territories folks didn't die yeah. when Vince yeah. killed the business. No, the territories just became more, how could you say, they were more covert Uh, they became more of like an underground phenomenon because yeah, yeah. They, they were off the radar. Mm. But wrestling is still a territorial business. So therefore, if, if, if let's say as a promoter, if I were to bring somebody to Finland from, let's say you're anywhere in Europe and I have so many guys write me and even girls and they're, they're like, Hey, I'd love to come to wrestle for slam wrestling, Finland and whatever, mm. blah, blah, blah. And the question is that how do I monetize you? In other words, how are you going to sell tickets for me to my yeah, show? Yeah. So if your expenses, if your plane tickets, let's say 150 euro and whatever, you know, and your hotel is X and your, your pay is X and whatever, I have got to sell enough tickets to cover my investment in you, uh, and make money on top of that. Yeah. Not just make, you know, just not just cover your, your fee or your, your entire kit and caboodle. Yeah, exactly. I got to make some money. Yeah. Or why else would you do it? Yeah, or exactly. Why else should I do it? So mm. therefore, 
What am I looking for? I'm looking for somebody who's going to sell tickets, whether it's the look. Now, whether it's, and then I have to think of the demographic. Who am I selling my show to? Mm. Is it kids? Yeah. Is it adults? Is it an 18 plus kind of like party crowd? Yeah, yeah. Is it a business, like a, let's say a businessman's like luncheon yeah. or whatever? Yeah, yeah. Right? So it depends on the nature of the event. Who can I book for this event that's going to fit the nature of the event? Who's going to titillate uh, that ticket buying audience mm. that is going to be interested in this piece of work? Yeah, yeah. So that's where folks wrestling becomes... Even though WWE, uh, it's different, and this televised product is a bit different. Like, like Dylan was saying with AEW, that it's maybe it's just the brand. People yeah. just want to see AEW. At least AEW. at the moment. Yeah, at the moment. But at the end of the day, it still boils down to uh, being a draw. Mm. If you don't have the elements to become a draw, you aren't going to get booked. Yeah, true. Very true. I mean, I, I want to talk to you a lot about uh, who... Who was it that drew you in and who did you pay uh, money to go see when you were growing up um, out there in uh, Timmins, Ontario and and whatnot? But uh, let's take a quick break and do that old word from our sponsors and we'll be back talking about more of the biggest draws in wrestling history. Skip is the oldest sports supplement brand out of Europe since the 1970s. Engineered by professors, doctors, and scientists at Sweden's leading medical university, Karolinska Institute, Skip products are pharmaceutical grade, meaning that they are the highest quality available on the market today. Meaning they work. If you're after results, you wouldn't put low-octane gas in a turbocharged high-end sports car engine, would you? Neither would you put junk quality supplements into your body as an athlete. All Skip products are first tested amongst top athletes to ensure their efficiency. Choose the best. Skip Nutrition. That's skip.fi. S-K-I-P dot F-I. Estrada Creative Helsinki. Your brand and story with the strength of modern marketing. Social media gets your brand and message in your audience's hands, and your story with the boost of marketing and videography is your strongest means of persuasion. That's where Estrada Creative Helsinki gets involved. Check them out on Facebook at facebook.com slash Estrada Creative Helsinki. Marco Simonen offers photography and video production for business and marketing. In addition, editorial and portrait work welcome. For more, see marcosimonen.com. That's M-A-R-K-O-S-I-M-O-N-E-N.com. All right, and here we go. Let's get the last stretch here and talk about the actual, like, our our draws. Who, who when we were kids, uh, who did we just desperately need to go and see? Didn't matter who was on the card other than this one attraction who was it for you well you know what the thing is that when i was growing up in um in ontario canada it was i was born in 73 in timmins and and i first saw my first pro wrestling show on tv it was some broadcast i don't even remember who it was in mm. the ring i just remember he was blonde he was muscular uh in tights it wasn't hulk hogan at the time it was somebody else might have been superstar billy graham yeah um anyway 
And it was like the superheroes come to life. Yeah. So I think as a young boy, the number one thing, I mean, every young boy does this. They say, daddy, show me your muscles. Yeah. yeah. Right. So your dad's going to pop up his bicep. And my dad used to do the thing where he would actually, uh, put his thumb behind his bicep and and push it up, you know, and say, well, there, look at that boy. It's like, that's, that's a potato right there. And you got to pee. Right now, you, you you have a pee inside your arm. Mm. But one day, it's going to grow into into a potato. There you go. Right? Yeah. So I think every young boy out there wants to, uh, how could you say, like identify with, like, mm. correlate with uh, masculine energy. Mm. It, it's it's part of our DNA. Right? right. I know it's nowadays they're trying to do a, do away with this gender role thing and, and no more he and no more she. and the, the, But that's a crock of shit because uh, you can't fight biology. Mm. And it's the way that we're geared biologically, um, that with an XX or XY chromosome, you just identify more with certain things in general. Right. Right. And with men and with boys, it's always been something to do with muscles and power. And it's since the ancient Greeks and the, the Romans, I mean, it's, if you look at their greatest heroes, they're all like muscular guys. Look at the statues. Mm. Yeah. You don't see any fat statues out there or like skinny statues there, even if they're like, like let's say uh, on the thinner side, they're still very well defined. Yeah, yeah. Right. So all of the iconic, uh, how could you say like heroes of your, of times past, mm. uh, exemplified power, hmm. bravery, they exemplified heroic elements. And the same is true that every young boy will aspire to that, that he will resonate with that. That's why he likes the Hulk. Yeah. That's yeah. why he likes Thor and he likes uh, Spider-Man, even well, the, the new Spider-Man or whatever, far from home movies. The, the, the guy's a teenager for crying out loud. <laughs> Doesn't even look like Spider-Man. Mm. Anyway, my point being that um, traditionally that's the way that, that, it, that, that it works. So for me, like what drew me into wrestling definitively in my younger years was seeing guys that were like either they look freakish freakish or very unique like bruiser brody mm. like he, larger than life yeah larger than life insane yeah um abdullah the butcher oh yeah yeah just bleeding all over the place i, I thought he was a scary guy i mean it's uh, like to, to this day yeah i mean i can see i don't think i would show <laughs> you know even a picture of abdullah the butcher to my kids right well now. that's it that's it um on top of that, I mean, guys that caught my caught my fancy when I was like twelve years old. I remember seeing Steve Strong, one of the guys that got me into the wrestling business. Mm. All right, Steve DeSalvo, wrestling for Gino Brito's Montreal or uh, his uh, promotion out of Montreal called International Wrestling, mm. and and because he was just so muscular, just the the muscularity just blew me away. Yeah, right. Uh, then when I got a bit older, maybe even in that time, I remember a guy called Dan Crawford. Mm who used to wrestle in all Japan pro wrestling with uh, Phil, or, I mean, as, as uh, Doug Furness's tag team partner in WWE, they came in for a bit in 97, I think it was. And they were like Phil LaFon and oh, Doug yeah. Furness. And that okay, was like yeah. Dan Crawford's like real name was Phil LaFon. Anyway, the point being that these were the guys that caught my attention. And then of course, when I was younger, the first time I saw Saturday night's main event, Hulk Hogan versus Nikolai Volkov and oh, Hogan yeah. right away. It's like, that's, that's the look of a freaking star. Yeah. Hmm. You know, when I saw Ric Flair for the first time, it's like, it was so different from Hulk Hogan at the same, the same time period, but there was something so like elaborate about him, mm. just the robes and the, yeah. you know, the blonde bleach, blonde hair and the, 
just the confidence that exuded from there's something about him that you got to like the road warriors yeah yeah were my favorite tag team of all time like at the time i remember when i was a kid just seeing the pictures not even having seen them on television yet mm. just seeing pictures yeah i think it was in people magazine wow and, yeah. and i saw this spread of like the top pro wrestlers in the business and it's like right away it's like that face paint mm. big muscular dudes yeah yeah right uh, so that's what caught my my fancy. When I look back, all of these guys had the charisma. Mm. If you analyze it, like yeah. 2020, yeah, hindsight yeah. being 2020, they had the charisma, they had the look, and they had the skills that's, that, that best suited uh, their visage. In yeah. other words, what they look like. like. Once again, Hulk Hogan, I'm not expecting him to do uh, Hurricane Rana's. Mm. I'm not. Yeah. I, what he did for his wrestling style was fine. That's mm. it. You didn't need any more than that. Yeah. So like, and Abdullah the Butcher, you wouldn't expect Abdullah to be do, like doing wrist locks. True. Yeah. He's out there to fork people and make them bleed. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. He's the butcher. He's the butcher. Exactly. Perfect name. Player gimmick. Yeah. Yeah. Player gimmick. From Windsor, Ontario. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and, spoil anything. And, and by the way, I remember I was talking to, to Jiri, who I wrestled at uh, WrestleAid here for a slam wrestling's event on June 29th. And I remember talking to, to, to Jiri years ago in Japan. And he said that I believe that pro wrestling is a character driven business. Mm. He said that when Japanese people, for example, go and they spend their hard earned yen once, twice a week mm. on something like enter, entertainment yeah. in general, yeah. he said, they don't want to see people like themselves. They don't want to see Joe Schmoes and regular Joes. Mm. They want to see something bigger than life, larger than life. They want to see something that's going to take them out of their mundane reality and transport them to a different place in their minds. Yeah. That's where you have to see, uh, what they want to see is King Kong versus Godzilla. Yeah. And I think the same is true for every culture out there. I don't think that like when you go see a show, whether it's the cabaret mm. or whether it's uh, Disney on ice or whatever it is. Yeah. A passionata or whatever, you know, the horse show. You don't want to see just regular schmucks dressed in like t-shirts and, and jeans. Yeah. That's where like, I think grunge when it killed like heavy metal, when it killed hard rock back in like the big, the, the start of the nineties, I think that, that was the one thing that just like downgraded the entire music industry was you had grunge artists dressing in flannel shirts mm. in jeans, cutting their hair uh, wearing glasses on stage and sorry, but you just killed the rock star. Mm. Yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways, uh, I mean, I think it happened in the wrestling business as well. Um, but it doesn't last for that long. I guess people, it, it comes with that. They want, they want the opposite of what was fed to them or, you know, if they get Motley Crue and, and uh, Kiss and Alice Cooper and this really, really over-the-top stuff. Mm -hmm. It there Then comes the next generation that that can't stand that, and they want they want the exact opposite. They want some Joe Schmo and uh, singing about some hardships or something like that. And then the next generation, they can't stand that. They want to see over-the-top, flashy, flamboyant stuff, and then... Yeah comes comes full circle in that and i guess these mm. are the generations and i remember was it uh was it had to do with did it have to do with wwe talking about this seven year uh, uh cyclical or 
how would you say this cycle of, of seven years and every seven years you can do the old stuff again, uh-huh. you know, cause the, then your audience either has forgotten about it and then you have a new audience that hasn't seen it before right. and then you can rehash it out like in a, in a, of course more maybe a new way, but the same formula and can, can go every seven years and you, and you'll be okay. But mm-hmm. I don't know how true that is, but, um, yeah, I mean, for me anyway, I, I grew up, uh, in the eighties, um, born in 82 and I, I know that when I was coming home for, for lunchtime, there was, a because I would walk, walk to school, it's just down the street, come walk home and have craft dinner or something uh-huh. like that, you know, yeah. <laughs> Good old craft dinner. Yeah, the Canadian dish. Macaroni cheese. That's it. Or some chicken noodle soup or something like that, and with grilled cheese sandwich. Lots of ketchup, of course. And uh, yeah, uh, I would watch, I I don't even know what the show would be, but it was WWF at lunchtime during the week, I think. And uh, maybe it was some replay of Saturday night or something something like that. But Mm -hmm. I remember distinctly Bret Hart and um, The Undertaker or at least The Undertaker and Paul Bearer, and seeing that on TV, and The Undertaker tombstoned, maybe some, I can't remember who it would be, and uh, just like, you know, shock that there was a dude this this big, that was bigger than a guy was all, that was already big, mm-hmm. and had this manager, uh, as in Paul Bearer, that was just like, who the hell is that? And having this urn and this idea that that guy was dead and, and uh, you know, that he was holding onto this, like, the spirit or whatever in the mm-hmm. ashes and could mm-hmm. control the guy. And yeah. Even though it was totally ridiculous, but it was it definitely drew me in that I was like, holy crap. And I remember uh, I was sitting there with a friend, and I and I was I think show, showing him wrestling for the first time, and it was Undertaker versus some Job or Jimmy or something. Which Job or Jimmy, whomever that is going to pertain to, they have a legitimate job in the wrestling industry that we should talk about on another yeah. show. That that enhancement talent uh, mm-hmm. job. I mean, I mean, I guess being a jobber sounds very derogatory, but that's why they call them enhancement talents. There you go. So, but anyway, so so Undertaker tombstoned Jimmy. And my friend, you know, he was very much like not, didn't know anything about wrestling. And all of a sudden he just was like, what? Is that real? And then there's Paul Bearer turns to the camera and goes, oh, yes. And then he like (laughs) freaked him out. Uh But he like literally yelled out, is is this real? And then there's Paul Bearer like looking right at him saying, yes, it is real, basically. And Uh uh, he totally, uh, he was shocked and... uh, that moment I've remembered, you know, of course, since since then, and I, I was drawn right in there. Mm-hmm. Oddly enough, I mean, my biggest, like for me then, when I could actually um, want to buy a ticket to a pro wrestling show, it was it was the Hart Foundation and, and Bret Hart and, you know, those all of those guys that, mm-hmm. those were the ones I wanted to see. Stone Cold Steve Austin, of course, as well. But... Um, funny that you know i got drawn in by the larger than life big man and then the guys who kind of kept me in there were i would i would still say like you know bret hart and steve austin they're larger than life but in, a, in not in a stature way no but the thing is i think that like when, once you get accustomed to seeing pro, like pro wrestling for a bit yeah 
uh, what draws you in, like you said, are the are the big uh, freakish guys. Yeah, yeah. Uh, or the very unique looking ones, and, and then the things that retain your interest are the exciting ones. Mm, mm. I think that's the thing: the ones that can offer you the most excitement and the most twists and turns. Yeah, yeah. For your for your uh, attention span. True. And and that way. As we close up shop this week, uh, what do you think, or who do you think today are the draws? I mean, are there any draws at all, or or how do you see it? Yeah, it, I think it's a really interesting question because you could look at New Japan Pro Wrestling, and as you said, and that like I, I agree hundred percent to you. You can be someone somewhere, but you know who are you? Well, what was the phrase you used? Uh, you might be so, yeah. You might be somewhere, somebody, or you might be somebody somewhere, That's but it. that doesn't mean that you're somebody somewhere else. Yeah. yeah. So you look at the Hiroshi Tanahashi, uh, the ace of new Japan who, you know, the, everybody says he brought that company out of the ashes and, uh-huh. uh, Kenta who's now in new Japan, but did the same kind of thing for Noah mm. and, uh, now Kazuchika Okada and these kind of names, they are, they are big draws, I think, in New Japan. And I think when you put, um, say, a match, Okada versus Tanahashi, regardless of how many times you're going to do that, that match is going to sell out. Uh, at least, uh, maybe not sell out the Tokyo Dome, per se, but it will it will be a, the reason why those people generally come to see that show. It'll be the draw. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Naito, Okada, uh, Naito and Jericho. Mm-hmm. When Jericho came in, I think... Mm-hmm. Even though he was slightly less known, but he pushed himself in there, and they did a really good job selling this uh, foreign invader idea. But, uh, but wasn't it that actually Jericho's first Tokyo Dome that his presence at that show drew about ten percent more audience? Yeah, yeah, versus Kenny Omega, and, yeah, and I think yeah. also the subscribers online, which is what they were more actually mm-hmm. concerned about to, yeah. to New Japan World. So yeah, Jericho did. He, especially that, because I think that was a huge shocking mm-hmm. moment, and uh, for sure. But then, uh, not that Jericho isn't the draw for AEW, uh, which I think that it's it's like for AEW, I do think that it is a brand that right now is drawing people there. Mm-hmm. They don't care who's on the show, mm-hmm. you know, all out. They didn't announce anything, I think. Mm-hmm. There was no, no matches no, that, no, on the card. No, and, there were two. Was there two when they put the tickets on sale? Yeah, it was Jericho against the um, Hangman, and then it was uh, what was the other one? Was it Omega and Moxley? Yeah, those, like those, that. yeah, those two. Okay, well, yeah. either way, those are you know those are going to sell out. The uh, uh, those are draws, but it is also this strange time when I think that uh, they you know when New Japan comes to United States, they don't they put out the tickets and they don't put any card until a few weeks before. And that's kind of seemed to be their detriment recently. Uh, And then when they do put the names on the card, it doesn't really sell the tickets either. So I don't know what's going on there. Ring of honor. I I don't know. Maybe they should try actually putting the main event out. Yeah. Like if, if the main event's good enough just to see if that would still be the thing that would draw. Yeah. Because, you know, just to touch on that, by the way, I was listening to uh, JR's podcast, mm. Grilling JR, the new, yeah, yeah. The, the new, how could you say, version of what it used to be, uh, what was it? Um, the JR, uh, the Ross Report? Yeah, the, Ross, yeah, it used yeah. to be Ross Report, yeah. Anyway, he was saying that, like, was it around 2004, uh, the, the, the main event, the guys in the main event on the house shows, for example, mm. were getting 3% of the gate. 
So if you're doing, let's say $30,000, uh, that night at the gate, yeah. then your main event, the one half of that main event though. So let's say the one guy is making 900 yeah, and yeah. the other guy's making 900. Mm. So that's how it breaks down. Um, and the only guy that was making 5% was, uh, Stone Cold. Right. Okay. Right. Mm. So, but, but the thing here is that like, so there has to be a, like a reason why you want to be in that main event. In other words, like it, there's a reflection in your pay. Mm. There's, you, you just like definitively make more money, uh, maybe your merchandising or whatever other rights that you might have, uh, to merchandising or like subsidiary or whatever televised or movie or whatever they go up correspondingly. Mm. Yeah. That's why you should like aspire to be in that position is it, or get better and get like booked higher. Yeah. Is because you should be making more money. There you go. And I'm, yeah. Uh, but back to, I guess I, I, I went off the topic mm-hmm. of who's the draw today. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, it's a, it's a tough question cause I don't, I don't really know. I think Kenny Omega and Chris Jericho and the young bucks and, um, Cody to an extent, I think those guys have a draw to a certain degree, a certain audience, mm-hmm. uh, maybe John Moxley as well. Yeah. But um, to say you could put their names on a card and it will sell out like 20,000 seater or something like that uh, without having it an AEW show, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know because uh, they had New Japan did a, uh, an event and it was um, – Kenny Omega and the Young Bucks and, you know, all those people were on, on the card, but it didn't sell out, you know, uh, I think it didn't sell out 10,000 or, or so mm-hmm. back in not, I think it was last year. So, and then in WWE, I really don't think there is absolutely anybody there that is actually the one that sells tickets. I don't think Roman Reigns sells tickets. Mm-hmm. I, I, maybe Brock Lesnar might turn a few people to buy tickets, but I also don't think that he is the reason that that, uh, they're making money either. So I think it's also a brand that they're, that they are selling their brand. Nowadays, it's like, you want to go see WWE, you want to go see AEW. Mm-hmm. Uh, not very many people seem to want to go see ROH these days, but, uh, you know, so I don't know if it's a single person right now, or is it, is it like a brand war all of a sudden? And it actually just reminds me that, uh, Pentagon, mm that, uh, you know, he's so hot, right? Him and Ray Phoenix's brother. Yeah. They're so hot right now that, uh, they, they, their calendar is booked yes. all the way through, like, I mean, for months and months, if not like a year forward. Yeah. Right. So the thing is that they can afford to cherry pick their bookings and even like drop bookings if they don't want to do them or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Right. Cause the thing is they're, they're, they're booked all the time. That's being over is having your calendar that full that, and, but even them without that international exposure mm. with, without them being put on the map, like whether it's impact or whether it's all in or whether it's, uh, whatever. But the thing is uh, new Japan, you've got to have a platform that's going to expose you mm. to enough people that you'll have the chance to get over. Yeah. Right. Otherwise you'll just be locally over right in right. your area. So mm. it's kind of like, you know, with, with the hearts, uh, like in Calgary, the thing was that Bruce Hart, Keith Hart and whatnot, they never got that national exposure because they, they weren't put on that big stage, mm. right? 
you know, they did, they did that one Survivor series with Brett, you right? Know, right. And, you know, where the, the the entire Hart family was there. Yeah. But still, outside of that, it's like they got nothing, mm. right? So, but Brett was put out in front of New York. He was mm. put on the map by Vince, so he was given the chance to get over. Yeah. Which once again brings me back to what Tori Wilson uh, said about Vince: that I'll give you the stage, but it's up to you mm. what you do with the spotlight. So, folks. It's been great shooting the Shazat with you this week. And remember that if you're part of the wrestling business, doesn't matter what country you're in, uh, you need to get over. Because whether or not uh, having guys and girls that sell tickets nowadays to the big shows like WWE or AEW or whatever, uh, it's a moot point because they're already there, right? They're already in that company. Uh, but for you, if you are in the wrestling business on the indie level, look into like make your way up the card and get more bookings and get like actually have a career, have a have a chance at making a career out of this. You are obliged to get over with not just your audience, but regardless of whatever platform, whatever stage that you're on in whatever country, you have got to commandeer the spotlight uh, once that light shines upon you. So therefore, remember. Getting over is a prerequisite for making it in our industry. This has been Shooting the Shiz Out. It's been a public service announcement from Starbuck, the rebel himself, and from the Broda, yeah. Dylan himself. That's me. All right, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, we'll catch you next week. And follow us on social media at Shooting the Shiz Out.